He uncovers our iniquities. And so we're going to jump right in. This morning, we're going to continue our study of the book of 1 John. And we find ourselves in the last chapter of the book, chapter 5. We're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 5 today. So our text is 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. And as you are well aware of by now, the Apostle John has been testing us, has he not? He originally writes this letter in, in part to provide three different tests to these churches whom he loves. He gives them the doctrinal test of knowledge, the moral test of righteousness, and the social test of love. And we have addressed these three tests and applied them to our context several times throughout this letter. But up until this point, we have been dealing with these tests separate from one another. We have been inspecting them individually and applying them to ourselves, asking along the way, do I pass this test? Am I really a Christian? Do I have authentic faith in Christ? Do I believe in him? Do I have biblical doctrine? Do I love? Do I prove myself to be in Christ because of my love for my brothers and sisters? And do I obey God's commands? Can my commandment keeping be looked at as evidence for my faith in Christ? What John does here in these verses is link all of these, ver all of these tests together. John's emphasis here is that you can't fail one test and pass the other two. You can't pass one and fail two. They are a pass or fail compilation of tests. Either you pass them all or you fail them all. And the reason that this is true is because they are so interwoven and deeply connected. So rather than look at these tests separate and distinct from one another, John has been building his argument up until this point to summarize his thought here in chapter 5 to say, these are the tests. Do you see how connected they are one to another? They are intertwined. They are linked. John takes this chain of tests, if you will, to provide an encouragement to his people. Because remember, assurance of salvation is crucial to John. He wants his people, if they really are Christians, if they pass these tests, to be assured of their salvation in Christ. He links these tests together to provide an encouragement to these people. And so I've entitled this sermon, Overcoming the World. Because as we will see, these five verses really are an abridged version of the entire book of 1 John. And John roots his summary in the idea of overcoming the world in verses 4 and 5. Ultimately, to provide an encouragement. I think verse 4 is one of the most encouraging verses in all of the scripture. And so we'll get to that in just a moment. But for now, let me read the text. And then I will jump in asking the Holy Spirit to or pray, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate these truths to us and apply them to our hearts, and then we'll dive into the text. But this is God's true and authoritative and inerrant word of God, and so I pray we give it our full attention. The Lord is going to speak to us. Are we listening? He says this to us in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you anxious to hear from you as a corporate body. God, we're so thankful for this means of grace, something that we have been starving for. We longed to be along the path of your grace for some time and are thankful that this morning we are allowed to gather in your name to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit of God, as we open up these scriptures that you have breathed out, I pray that they will be profitable to us. I pray that they would change us. I pray that you would use your word as an effective means to transform us. Grant us the gift of faith if we have yet to receive it and sanctify those who have. Give us ears to listen, eyes to see, hearts to respond. Make us more effective for your kingdom. We need your help. We are desperate for your mercy and power. Glorify yourself in our presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right in and start with verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. First thing first, John says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God everyone. It doesn't matter if you are Baptist or Presbyterian, if you are a pastor or a layman, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now categories can be good. Distinctions aren't necessarily wicked. Boundaries and lines in the sand aren't inherently bad. Denominations aren't evil. There are times in which it is very appropriate to distance yourself from certain people and certain groups in certain contexts. We could talk about whether or not the local church is even one of those times in which it is appropriate. But at the end of the day, when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to the church Catholic, the church universal, the body of Christ, what matters is belief in Jesus. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ. There are other things that we must believe in order to be Christians. That is certainly true. But fundamentally, the foundation of our faith is the historical reality that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is fully God and fully man. Jesus the Christ who came to save sinners. In order to be born of God, we must believe this. Better yet, when we are born of God, we will believe this. When God breathes spiritual life into us, when we are born again, we will believe that Jesus is the Christ. Essential to our rebirth is belief in the historical Jesus. John says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is evidence. If you have faith in Christ... If you have been given the gift of God and received it by faith, it is proof that you've been born again. If you are justified by faith, it proves that you've been regenerated. Regenerated, justified, adopted, sanctified, and one day glorified by the grace of God. This is a sovereign act of God. I hope we all see this. It's hard to believe that my youngest son, RJ, is already over two months old. 
when I think back to his birthday, it was a wild experience. We got to the hospital at like 9.05. He was born at 9.37. Granted, Leah had labored at home for a while, but she definitely freaked out the nurses when we arrived to the hospital. From my perspective, everything went great. I didn't have to do too much. Leah might tell you a different story. But one perspective that we so often neglect to think about is the child's. Probably because they don't have the cognitive abilities at that point. Much more development needs to take place. Memories don't start forming until like two years. But that just goes to show you. RJ didn't really have control over his birth, did he? He wasn't in control of the situation. He wasn't calling the shots. He wouldn't even have been born if not for his mother and father coming together in procreation. And so in an analogous sense, his parents were sovereign over his physical birth. And so it is with our spiritual birth. John 3 tells us, just as the wind blows where it pleases, as does the Holy Spirit. We have been born of God. Much like RJ didn't contribute one iota to his own birth, Christians do not make one iota of a contribution to their own rebirth. We are born of God. God chooses to save us in eternity past. God elected us before we even existed in time and space. God sends his son, who is very God, to live our life. Jesus, who is God, dies our death. And God then grants us the gift of faith. And we can't even boast in our belief, Ephesians tells us, because it is a gift of grace given to us by God. Salvation is all of grace. Being born of God is all of grace. And John says this is causative. If you have been born of God, then you will pass the doctrinal test. You will believe that Jesus is the Christ. The verse goes on to say, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We begin to see here, don't we? John's starting to connect these tests. Essentially, he is saying if you pass the doctrinal test, you'll pass the social test. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you will love your brothers and sisters. Those who are born of God, love God and love people. And there are a number of things worth noting here. First, that John says, everyone and whoever. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, all Christians will love all Christians. Child or adult. Democrat or Republican. White or black, male or female, upper class or lower class, elder or layman, rich or poor, master's degree or high school dropout, young or old, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Do you? The only category distinction here in this verse is Christian. And again, this isn't a verse against denominationalism or something like that. This doesn't mean that there are never times in which it's appropriate to separate ourselves in certain contexts. But we're talking here about love. Do we extend love to the universal church? Do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? John says everyone who believes in Christ and passes the doctrinal test will also pass the social test and love Christians. All of them. Every single one. You might be asking to this point, well, what about the moral test of righteousness? We've heard the doctrinal test of knowledge. We've heard about the social test of love. Aren't we missing a test up until this point? 
What about the moral test of righteousness? How does that relate? Where does it fit in? John makes this point in the next verse, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you've been born of God? If you pass the doctrinal test. How do you know if you pass the doctrinal test? If you've passed the social test and love people. How do you know if you've passed the social test? If you pass the moral test and obey God's commandments. I hope we can see here that John is summarizing this entire letter. And how these tests are so linked together and intertwined. Not allowing for anything other than a pass or fail. These tests are a package deal. At home, we are working our way through a children's catechism with Haddon and Knox. And Haddon's a good bit way through, but Knox is only up to question number four. And question number four is, how do you glorify God? Answer, love and obey. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. The moral test of righteousness is how we know if we pass the social test of love. We love by obeying. And this is why it's never made sense to me to say that Christianity is not about a set of rules. Actually, that's exactly how you tell if someone is in Christ. Do they keep the commandments? Now, of course, legalism is evil. We shouldn't make up imperatives that are simply not found in the Bible. We shouldn't hold people to higher levels of righteousness that the Bible doesn't. That is wicked. And this is normally people's biggest issue with a set of quote-unquote rules, that some false teachers have implanted their own set of commands that simply are not found in the Bible. And we should take issue with this. But we shouldn't overreact in such an antinomian way, in a way that rejects the law entirely, in a way in which results in sentiments that say, you know, it's not about a set of rules. Christianity is not a religion. Obedience doesn't matter to God. It's all about how you love. Legalism and antinomianism are two evil associates. Legalism says the law is the gospel. Antinomianism says because we have the gospel, there is no law. Legalism is a dangerous and damning ditch on one side. Antinomianism is a dangerous and damning ditch on the other. And in the middle is biblical truth. Truth that says we don't obey in order to earn Christ. Christ is our righteousness imputed to us. And now we obey because we are in him. We bear fruit. We obey because we have been saved. We obey because we have been born of God. And out of the outpouring of our rebirth comes commandment keeping. John says, a Christianity that isn't about commandments, I know of no such thing. By this we know. By what? When we love God and keep his commandments. And note here that John says that this is how we know that we love the children of God when we love God himself. Our love towards God is the funnel by which all other love flows through. If we fail to keep the second table of the law, it's because of our disobedience towards the first table of the law. Husbands, if you fail to love your wives, you are failing to love God. As husbands, our failures in love towards our wives are the result of failing to love the Lord first and best. 
when I fail to lead my wife spiritually, it is because I don't love God like I ought. When I fail to love my children and am selfish or lazy in parenting, it is because I don't love God like I ought. Love to God is expressed in glad keeping of his commandments, especially towards other believers in Christ, our brothers and sisters. John goes on further in verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Law and love are not enemies. Ian Hamilton calls law and love spiritual twins, both essential to one another. The Apostle John might call the doctrinal test of knowledge, the moral test of righteousness, and the social test of love spiritual triplets connected at the hip. Doctrine, love, and righteousness go hand in hand with one another. This is the love of God, the text says. And how is the love of God made manifest when Christians obey God's commandments? Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so do you love Jesus? Law and love are spiritual twins. And I got to think that John can sense the pushback here at this point. Obedience to a set of commands? That sounds like handcuffs. You're, you're trying to tie us down. One, I won't be able to do it. And, and two, even if I could, why would I want to? That doesn't sound like any fun. Because we in America, and even more specifically in Pacific Northwest, we're so individualistic, so anti-establishment, anti-authority, that doesn't sound like the American way. That doesn't sound like freedom. To live by a certain standard, by a set of rules, a list of commands, is that freedom? That sounds like a burden. John says in verse 3, the commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not weights to hold us down. Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One commentator said, God's commandments are no more burdensome to a Christian than wings are burdensome to a bird. They're the means by which we live in freedom and fulfillment. Brethren, is this your perspective? Do we see the commandments of the Lord as weights to hold us down or as air under our wings? Because this is what John is getting after. Our heart, our motives, our purpose. Do we understand God's commandments to be burdensome? Or do we sing with the King David? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. If I'm honest, this is a very convicting passage. And I'm preaching directly to myself when I ask, is this you? Are the commandments of the Lord burdensome? Or do you desire them more than gold? Are they sweeter to your soul than honey is to your lips? Listen to the first couple of verses of Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but he is obedient to the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Is that what it says? 
If you're a student of the Bible, you might say, no, that, that's not what it says. It doesn't say obedient. It says delight. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist doesn't say the man obedient to the law is blessed. He said the man who delights in the law of the Lord, that's the blessed man. Thanks be to Christ, the perfect law-abiding one who died for my sins. He died to pay the punishment for me failing to obey God's commandments and even for me failing to delight in the law as I should. And because we are now found in Christ, our yoke is light. Our joyful obedience is fruit of God's sanctifying grace in our lives. Moving on in the text to verses 4 and 5. As I mentioned before, a couple of the most encouraging verses in all of the Bible. They say this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Not everyone overcomes the world. There are some that are enticed by the lusts of this world and swallowed up as its slaves. Where in the end, death and sin will win. In the end, where the world is the best thing they will experience, where common grace of their earthly lives is the pinnacle of their existence, and they will someday beg to return to it. If you do not have faith in Christ, this is you. The authoritative word of God says here that only those born of God overcome the world. And then in John's sequence of thought, he answers how to achieve this triumph through faith. Victory over sin and death in this world are found through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so for the Christian... For the one who has faith in Christ and has and will overcome the world, consider the implications of this truth for your life here and now. You are made a participant in the victory of Christ that he achieved for you. You're made a partaker in his triumph. Is there more, a more encouraging reality? That because God loved you, he gave himself up for you. That you might believe in him, love him, and keep his commandments. And because you do, you have confidence on the day of judgment that you win because Jesus won. So when the cancer is upon you, when it takes over your body, when it hurts so bad you can't sleep at night, John reminds you, you have victory in Christ, you have overcome the world. When you feel isolated and alone, depressed, feeling as if no one in the world understands you or even notices your existence. You put a smile on your face, but you're just not sure how long you can fake it anymore. John reminds you that darkness doesn't win. You have victory in Christ. You have overcome the world. When your world is crashing down because you have marital trouble, you are clinging to every ounce of hope you can. You want to make it work because you love God and want to keep his commandments, but your spouse still walks out on you. You can't see a way forward. John reminds you, you have victory in Christ. You have overcome the world. When you are addicted to something, it has a grip on you, and you can't seem to shake it. 
John reminds you the power over sin has been broken. You no longer have to sin again. You have victory in Christ. You have overcome the world. When you are grieving the loss of a family member who had faith in Christ, you can rejoice in the midst of pain because they have overcome the world. Praise be to God. Brethren, hear God. Christian, heed this truth. You have overcome the world. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our worship. You are good. You are just. You are all-wise and all-knowing. And Father, you are merciful to us, your people, and we are thankful for the chance to gather as a covenant community, as a family. God, help us. Help us to believe your word to us and apply it to our lives. And above all, to delight in it. May our deepest longing and deepest satisfaction in this life be in our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us wicked sinners. We are grateful for his atoning work on the cross and the gift of faith that you granted to us by grace. Go with us. Lead us, guide us, protect us by the power of the Holy Spirit until we gather again in Christ's name. Amen.